Welcome to the System Speak podcast. If you would like to support our efforts at sharing our story, finding stigma about dissociative identity disorder, and educating the community and the world about trauma and dissociation, please go to our website at www.systemspeak.org where there is a button for donations and you can offer a one-time donation to support the podcast or become an ongoing subscriber. You can also support us on Patreon for early access to updates and what's unfolding for us. Simply search for Emma Sunshaw on Patreon. We appreciate the support, the positive feedback, and you sharing our podcast with others. Dr. Shelley Itzkowitz is an adjunct associate professor of psychology and clinical consultant at the NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, guest faculty, the Eating Disorders, Compulsions, and Addictions program, the William Allen White Institute. He's on the teaching and supervisory faculty of the National Institute for the Psychotherapies and the Trauma Studies program of the Manhattan Institute for Psychoanalysts. He is an honorary member of the William Allenson White Society, a fellow and member of the Board of Directors of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. Dr. Itzkowitz has published several articles on the topics of trauma, dissociation, and DID, and has presented his work on dissociation and dissociative identity disorder, both nationally and internationally. He and Elizabeth Howell have a chapter, The Unconscionable in the Unconscious, The Evolution of Relationality in the Treatment of Trauma, appearing in the recently published volume, Dissociation in the Dissociative Disorders, Past, Present, and Future, the second edition of The Brick, from Paul Dell and John O'Neill. They are co-editors of their recently published book, Psychoanalysts, Psychologists, and Psychiatrists Discuss Psychopathy and Human Evil, which received the 2021 Media Award written by ISSTD. They have also co-edited The Dissociative Mind in Psychoanalysts, Understanding and Working with Trauma, which received the 2016 Media Award written by ISSTD. Dr. Itzkowitz received the Lifetime Achievement Award from ISSTD. He is in full-time private practice in Manhattan, working with both individuals and couples, and provides consultation individually and in groups. Welcome, Dr. Shelley Itzkowitz. Well, I am excited to have you today. Do you want to introduce yourself just so that people can orient to your voice? Sure. Hi, I'm Shelley Itzkowitz. I'm a psychologist living in New York City, and I practice psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. And my office is in Manhattan. I am so excited to talk to you today. I have had the most fun adventures with you in meetings and and office work with the ISSDD and um, it has just been good to get to know you over the years. How I want to start at the beginning. How did you even learn about trauma and dissociation or where did that journey start for you? Um. Okay. Uh, well, let's go back to 1968. I think that's the year. Um, I took my first psychology course. And oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm mistaken. I did take my first psychology course in 1968. But the event that I'm thinking about was in 1970. And that was my first a course in abnormal psychology. And um, when we got to dis well, with multiple personality disorder, Right. Uh, the book uh, talked about how rare it is and um, only a few cases, maybe a century. So that that always caught, caught my attention and I was always interested in that. And of course, you know, you could you see these things on TV that don't accurately portray uh, multiple personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder, but nevertheless, they were fascinating. Um, and I have 20 years of experience working on inpatient units, 
locked inpatient units with the most seriously disturbed uh, people. Um, and they're just filled with trauma. Trauma is not unknown to me from my background. Um, uh, my father's entire family was killed in the Holocaust. Um, and so that, that end association was part of my upbringing. And in 1993, I was a supervising psychologist at a hospital here in New York City. And the unit chief approached me and said, I have a patient uh, that you might be interested in working with. And I was very surprised to hear this because I don't normally take people right out of inpatient units. That's just not the kind of practice that I have. And, uh, and when he told me she had multiple personality disorder, I said, please send her to my office. Um, and this is what really got me started. I spent two or two and a half hours in my initial consultation with her. It was incredibly moving. Um, and of course I was naive at the time thinking that, wow, I have a, a rare situation on my hands and I'm going to get to see something that most people don't get to see little that I know in 1993. Um, and at the end of the, the consultation, I said to her, if you're looking for an expert in multiple personality disorder, I'm not the guy, uh, but I'll help you find someone. And she looked at me and sweetly said, no, I don't need an expert in, in multiple personality disorder. What I need is a sensitive therapist. I'll teach you the rest. That was a quote. Um, and that's what got me started. That is so powerful. And I think it's so true. It's, it's such a relational experience. And, and for many of us with developmental trauma, that aspect is such a key component to healing. Like no matter what models or techniques you have, if you don't have that, it's not going to work all the way. And so right. what insight that that person had and what a gift your sensitivity has been in that way. I just want to thank you. Um, this has been quite an experience for me. And quite honestly, Emma, uh, this is the most meaningful work I've ever done in my career, working with people who are suffering with DID. Oh that that became clear to me almost immediately. Oh. Can, I, can I ask a question about what you said about your childhood, or is that too personal? No, you can ask. You you mentioned your father's your whole father's family dying in the right. Holocaust. Mm -hmm. How how was that story shared with you growing up? What was your experience of that awareness and as you were growing up? Um well two different two two things, two ways to answer the question. Uh, I was born shortly after World War II. Um, so I'm uh, one of those one of those folks, a baby boomer. Um, and I had a significant experience with anti-Semitism um, in the neighborhoods that I grew up in. And uh, I was also sent to religious training and they there um, they <laughs> the torture of Jewish people is heavily emphasized, uh, historically, that is. Um, so that's one kind of trauma. But, but the trauma you're talking about is, is my father having lost his mother, his sisters, their children, and his brother. My father actually never told me about that. Uh, the person to tell me about that and explain it to me was my mom. Um, and this is what I'm uh, talking about in terms of dissociation, personal dissociation. My father really um, hardly ever spoke about this. And if he ever did, um, it was with no emotions attached to it. So in, in a way, by experience growing up and knowing that it happened to to his family and other family members of ours 
but not really being able to speak it, that, that I think created some intergenerational transmission of trauma, or at least it helped to do that. And quite frankly, it wasn't until fairly recently, um, talking with a friend of mine whose father was a concentration camp survivor, is a psychologist as well. Um, I suddenly realized I never knew the names. I was lying in bed one night and it suddenly dawned on me. I didn't know the names of my aunts and cousins, uncles and, and grandmother. My father never spoke of that. And clearly this is something that's been lingering in inside of me. Um, and um, I don't think about it that often, uh, but when I do, it's it's very powerful, very meaningful to me. Um, in fact, I named my son after my father's brother um, who died in the Holocaust. Uh, and I had a call, and my father was deceased when my son was born. So I had to call an uncle to find out what, another uncle to find out what my father's brother's name was. And I learned some things about him that was really meaningful for me. I'm crying. I'm sorry that that is that is so powerful and intense. And I think it's an example of um, we think these things were so long ago and they were not. And that the trauma did not just end when the war finished. It shows right. up in so many ways. Yeah, the unfortunate thing is it doesn't feel to me like human beings are learning from history and experience. It, it's a human tragedy. I just this last weekend took my children to an Holocaust exhibit that was at the local library. And we walked through that. I... Um, I, I wanted to show them, but this particular exhibit was interesting, different than other ones that I have taken them to before, because it was focused specifically on the Holocaust experience in America. And so it talked about things like what you just said about how like, are we learning from this experience and how in how complicit we were for so long before we did anything and talked about um, 20,000 refugee children we could have rescued but voted not to. And um, the, the, the boycott of the Olympics and mm -hmm. wanting to make that statement... But also at the same time, we had African-American runners and, and people of color that were like, you, you, you can boycott this, but also what, <laughs> you're doing it to us <laughs> because it was still during segregation. And, and my children are all adopted and, um, and my, my, all three of my daughters are biracial. And so it really connected with them in a different way from just when we read books together or watched movies together or traveled to see different things in museums and tried to impart this or to help them understand it, it landed differently this time. And they are, they are all 14 and under. And so their very earliest memories of of politics are the change from Obama to Trump and then the experiences that they witnessed. We lived in Kansas City during Black Lives Matters and the protests. And so they could see that the protests outside our window and and heard that and watched that and lived through that. And then were at different times targeted um during the during those resulting politics after that, because we lived in a very conservative area where people were pretty aggressive and, and said mean things and did mean things. And they experienced that on such a small, small scale. So for this to connect to them 
and understanding better as they grow up the implications of that and learning from that was a very different experience for them than just reading about it in the past has been. I mean, we, as a species, we have this incredible ability to be compassionate and empathic. And at the worst times, the best of us can come out and, and want to help and save people. But at the same time, our species is just horrendous at what we do to each other, how we humiliate, shame each other, um, kill each other like the situation that's going I mean there are many situations going on in the world in Sudan right now and um Russia's attack on the Ukraine what's happening in our own country <laughs> the the refusal to acknowledge gun violence although what I mean by that is people really want some limits placed on guns but somehow the people who have we've elected to represent us don't seem to listen. The same could be said about abortion. Mm. We don't we don't listen carefully enough to each other. I it's interesting you brought that piece up. I had a client this week who um was pregnant and had a and she and her husband were very happy to be pregnant and um she had a medical complication and in the state where we live it they could not treat her even even though it was not that kind of abortion or even though it was not that choice they had to drive seven hours and she almost died and it was the first time that I had a case like that like directly not just the philosophical argument or or things like that. It was really, really scary. And she is still very sick and in the hospital and has not awakened yet. Um, oh, I don't know if she's going to make it. And um, the the whole maternity ward in the town where we live, like the entire unit has closed. And like I don't know where those women are going who, who are just having healthy babies or healthy pregnancies. It's, it's so many questions of... Yeah. Why is it we are trading care for hate? Right. Yes. And um, it's very misogynistic. Um, in the 40 years that I've been in practice, 40 plus years, I've had a, a couple of women or a few women that have had to undergo abortions. And what people don't seem to understand is this is not a, a pleasant experience. People don't necessarily want to have to do this. It ha and it has profound emotional consequences for the woman when she needs to terminate her pregnancy, whether she became pregnant purposefully or accidentally. Um, th th this is not something that's an easy road for a woman to walk down. Politicians don't don't act like that. They don't act that. They don't know this, and they don't act like it, like they know it. And and even when someone is confident or at peace with their decision, the this struggle for safety and the recovery from the whole process is just so much. Absolutely. I I think too. I I didn't know we would be so political today, but in the in in the context of what you just said, I think what paused me for a moment was that aspect of wanting to save lives or to protect babies and things like that. But as someone who fostered 87 children in foster care and the six that got adopted, like we fight for the services they need and for the support they need and working ourselves literally to exhaustion, right? Just trying to feed them and, and, right not because I'm not trying and not because, and it's hard because the same people who say that they want to protect the lives of babies don't help. And they don't want, how do they say it in English? Cradle to grave. They don't want cradle to grave provision or care or benefits or something. And, 
And it's like, I'm, I'm not someone who's just on the street trying to live off free benefits. Like I'm exhausted just trying to meet basic needs. And there's so much that we go without, uh -huh. but they're here. Who's going to care for them? They're here. And I never planned to adopt six children. And I don't, I don't mean that I don't love them or I don't want them, but it was never on my radar. It was never something I thought, oh, that would be a great adventure. It was literally, these are the six that can't go home. What, what do I do with that? I can't, what do you do with that? And so here we are in the trenches. But how, how do you, since we're talking about this sort of that hate or even the, some people would say evil or these kinds of concepts that are out in the world, this is actually one of your books, which I didn't mean to talk about, but we've gone there. Tell me, or how would you tell about your book? Um, <laughs> well, it, 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 it emerged out of the first book that Elizabeth Howell and I uh, worked on to try to understand uh, how, um, how, to, how can we understand the acts that the evil behavior and the evil acts that human beings uh, cause upon each other. Um, the, the book is Psychopathy and Human Evil. Um, psych psychologists, psychoanalysts, and psychiatrists discuss psychopathy and human evil. Um, and it's a it's a really eye opening book. Um, looking at psychopathy and evil from several different perspectives it's it's all it's such a i'm trying to think of the word um the it's a unique experience going from focusing on survivors to looking at that intently mm -hmm. to also looking at even that with compassion it is it is a tricksy thing. I my first six years of my career were on and my dissertation, like the very beginning, I don't know how that was the job I landed to start with, but the beginning of my career was um working with sex offenders and on the residential inpatient unit and that's what I did for years and years and learning what is helpful and not and researching that and how to literally love the enemy. Like that's, that's what it is. It comes down to of how do I still see this person as a human? Because if I don't, if I don't, there is no healing and harm just continues. Right. Right. It's, it's really a testimony to you as a person and as a human being that you, you did that kind of work. I, um, I can't work with perpetrators. Um, after having worked with so many women in particular who've been victims of sexual assault, rape as children, um, it, I, I don't, I don't want to work with a perpetrator because I don't think I can be fully present. Well, I did not keep working with them as but, but, I began my therapy process, right? Because yeah. I think ultimately never intentionally, but I think when we, we always have our own therapy or our own consultations and looking at our own stuff, right? What am I bringing into the room and need to get taken care of so that they can bring their stuff into the room. And I think, and I've never said this out loud before, but I really have reflected on that a lot of what on earth was I doing there. And it was also in the same season that I had um, left my family and had no contact with my family. And I wonder if, like I didn't have any contact with my family for two decades and before my parents passed. And I think that part of what was happening in that season of my career was not intentionally or not consciously, but I think there was this attempt to understand 
like how how does this happen? Why does this happen? And I think in a kind of study that I don't think I was doing consciously, but for safety, for trying to make peace with what never was peaceful, uh-huh, uh-huh. all of these things, I think it was the closest, I, again, I'm using the word enemy, which is terrible. That's not a therapeutic relationship. But in the context of what we were saying earlier about um, psychopathy and evil, like how close could I get to that and learn and what information do I need to stay safe in the future or something? I don't know what that was about. Um, identifying, like all of these kinds of things. The, there's so many layers there that was really, as that began to surface, I thought, okay, I need to pull back and and focus on other things while I figure out what that was about because it was very intense. It was very intense. Yeah, you, you were really working something out, and along, you were on the road to healing yourself. So what what comes to my mind is I have had a few um, people who I've worked with who had German ancestry, mm. and as it became clear when their parents or grandparents, what their ages were, it became clear that they were alive, the parents or grandparents were alive during the Holocaust. And I found it really necessary for me to engage in a discussion about the Holocaust and understand their experiences or the transmission of their trauma from generation to generation and what what it's like for them being German or of German descent. Um, and it it really opens up a powerful communication between us. And that allows me to continue to work with a person um, because I can feel the, their pain. I can feel the, the guilt, uh, which is which is their trauma that they inherited. Um, so the, making it speakable makes room for it, or making room for that discussion allows a, a deeper connection, I, I think, between me and the, the person I'm working with. Making it speakable. I think there's something there. I think what I was doing in that phase of my life was facing my fear. I was learning to not be afraid. My, if I was going to survive, because I had escaped all this, I'd run I literally ran away when I was 17. If I was going to make it on my own, I could not be afraid anymore. For me, that had to be the difference between childhood and adulthood. Even though now I've done more work so that I know there are some things I should be afraid of or that that fear informs me, right? But also, I think that that was part of it. I had to stand up and face those fears. Which that was incredibly courageous. And it sounds like in some implicit way, you knew what you had to do and you, you knew you felt you had to escape from your family and you had to find the courage and the strength to survive and we're lucky that you did i think it was a season that also taught me a lot about boundaries because it was a population that could not get better if they did not have consistent boundaries and i had not had any boundaries and any consistency. And so it was really tough for me at first of like, why do we have to be so hard on them? Or, or what it how, how hard is too hard, and learning to find that balance to stay within a therapeutic threshold and not just this or that or black and white. That was the tricksy thing for me. Yeah, boundaries are really important for babies, little kids, tweens, teens, it's very, very important to know where I end and someone else begins and what's tolerable and what's 
acceptable and what isn't, those kind of boundaries are really crucial. It actually helps kids feel safe. Right, right. That I think I I had to learn that experientially. I think going back to your your clinical story, how did you get from that first case where they wanted a sensitive therapist to working with that as much, or or finding ISSTD, or how did you learn about trauma and dissociation once you two had agreed to work together? Um. Okay. <laughs> I'll take you through this journey. Um, after working with this woman for, I'm not sure how long it was, a few months, six months, seven months, I realized, oh, I'm, a, I'm in over my head. Uh, this is much more than I ever dreamed of. So I sought out supervision from one of the people who was a favorite supervisor of mine when I was in psychoanalytic training at the New York University postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. I told her about the case. I asked for supervision. And to be fair to her, she said that she didn't believe in multiple personality disorder, but she was very happy to try to be helpful. It was a tough year for me and my supervisor and for me and the patient. Um, It became clear to me towards the end of the academic year Well, even though I was getting some help and I found some help in the supervision, things weren't going well for my patient. And that if I stayed with the supervisor, I was going to lose my patient. And I didn't want that. So I chose to lose my supervisor um, and stop supervision. And a year later, a friend of mine was working with a social worker who was psychoanalytically trained and very knowledgeable in working with dissociation and what was now called dissociative identity disorder. And I was delighted to hear about this. So every other Friday afternoon, I would take the railroad from Manhattan up to uh, one of the towns in Westchester Um, and my friend would pick me up and she and I would drive to our supervisor's house and I would bring my notes and we'd talk about my case for an hour and a half every other Friday. Um, and that lasted for several years until my daughter was born. And then I (laughs) said to the supervisor, um, I really want to spend time with my daughter. Um, So we simply switched to phone supervision. Um, That's how I got help. That helped me tremendously. I learned a lot more about trauma and how to work with transference, countertransference with a trauma survivor. Um, And then I got a second and a third DID patient, continued in supervision, um, and continued learning. And simultaneously, I, I was in a couple of different study groups. Um, from In the 1990s, I was in a study group with Steve Mitchell, uh, who died in 2000. Um, and we never really got around to talking about trauma and dissociation in his his study group. Um, But I subsequently joined a study group with uh, um, Donald Stern. And I think I've been in for 15, 18 years. Um, And and in 2005 or 2006, he had us read Elizabeth Howell's book, uh, The Dissociative Mind. And I was tickled pink. I just love the book. I learned so much more. Um, And during these years, I was struggling with what do I do with this experience? How do I communicate this? This is really important for people to understand. And I was bumping up against hospital staff, psychiatrists, psychologists who didn't believe in dissociative identity disorder like my supervisor didn't believe in 
dissociative identity disorder. And a lot of the people who I came in contact with didn't believe it because either their supervisors told them it didn't exist or it didn't fit the model of psychotherapy or psychoanalytic thinking that there, there was no room for someone to have DID. They would, they would meet a DID person and misdiagnose them as psychotic, schizophrenic, bipolar disorder, um, borderline personality disorder. Um, so th this was very challenging and to me. And the first two patients, the second and third patients allowed me to videotape my work with them. Uh, and I would bring the videotapes into supervision. And I, I forget the year, it was maybe 1998. No, no, I'm sorry, 2008. Um, I was on a committee that was hosting the Division 39 annual conference in, in Manhattan. And I finally got the courage up to want to bring one of these recordings and show the recording and show the reality. This is not like these people are human. They're suffering. They're not, I don't consider someone with DID crazy. They're not animals. They're not to be mocked. Um, they're not to be humiliated. And and I, I really wanted to try to do some teaching. And I, I was able to offer a presentation. I contacted Elizabeth Howell, who I, I didn't know, but had read her book and asked her if she would consider being a co-presenter with me. And that's how our relationship got started. Um, and that's how we started working together. That's beautiful. That's amazing. How, how I, I want to start at the beginning of that. How, how did you work through that transition between the first supervisor where you were going to lose your supervisor or your client and right. then later more pragmatically of just, I need to spend more time with my daughter, just the pragmatic issue of time, even though we have a good relationship, that's not working. And you were able to talk about that and transition to phone sessions in just for newer clinicians, maybe how did you come to terms with recognizes you with recognizing you needed a shift in supervision? What was that like sort of a healthy ending so that you could have either something different or, or more appropriate for what your needs are or your patient's needs were? Well, um, many of the things that the supervisor was, many of the suggestions she was offering did not work. And she was not really hearing my experience. Um, here's an example. <clears throat> One day the the patient came in and she had done something unusual. And I said, wait, wait, wait a minute. Let's back up. Can, we, can you back up a minute? And so the patient walked backwards, which which was hilarious. And we had both had a good laugh. And then we started talking about what had taken place. I presented this to my supervisor. And her response was, you have to say to the patient, why can't you address me like the adult that you are? Oh, that's an, that's an example. And, and what I was asking her to back up into was that child part that had come into the room. Oh. So I could talk about why she was present on that particular day. And, and it just became clear that it was just not working out. And I, so in a some kind of a parallel process, I felt that my supervisor wasn't understanding me. I felt like the medicine she was giving me wasn't helping in the same way that my patient had experienced hospital after hospital of not understanding her, not helping her and misdiagnosing her. Your, your boundaries with your supervisor and with yourself of needing something different helped stop that reenactment that was yeah. happening circumstantially. Yeah. Yeah. 
what a gift to your the person you are working with to recognize like you said the medicine was not helping and that you were there to help and it was worth meeting your person where where they were and what they needed and offering that care and tending to that rather than trying to squeeze the person into someone else's model that was not right. actually applicable. Like her her comments and her supervision, like you said, in many ways was really good. So mm-hmm. that's great if it fits those people, but that was not fitting this person. No, no. I, I mean, I learned more about other things from her, but but it wasn't helping the current situation. In the long run, it just wasn't working. So after you and Elizabeth Howell presented together, what what came after that? How did you find ISSTD? Okay, so let me just say one thing before I talk about that. Um, I felt a real obligation to my patient because I was very honest with her about my lack of knowledge. And the fact that she was willing to trust me made me feel much more um i don't the word obligated comes to mind but i don't it wasn't obligated i felt well i felt an obligation to learn as much as i could that it was my responsibility to learn as much as possible to help this person who was in big trouble um who was willing to put a trust in me So, okay, I just wanted to throw that out. So you asked me about Elizabeth Howell. Um, At some point, Elizabeth invited me to um, be on a presentation with her at ISSTD. Oh, wow. I had no idea that ISSTD existed. Um, I only wish I knew in 1993 or 1994 in, in those beginning years. Um, it, it would have saved it would have saved me and the patient a lot of time. Um, so, so I was delighted to be invited to present with Elizabeth. I brought um, some of my videos. I think I brought one video to that first presentation. Um, I brought subsequent videos to subsequent presentations, um, and. When I when I walked into ISSTD, it was like feeling like I was coming home. Yes, I was. I was with people who understood the suffering. Yes, who understood the 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 trauma that creates a dissociatively structured mind, and nobody was telling me I was crazy. Nobody was telling me the patients were crazy or the patients are lying. And boy, did I feel comfortable and relaxed. And um, I I really wanted to keep presenting. I really really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed presenting. It it really meant something to me. And it felt, felt like I was doing something, something really useful. I just... I think you've spoken to something uh, about the feeling of being with others who understand and the experience, especially in a context of those days or, or even still today when so many don't know or don't understand and, um, have not even been exposed to accurate understanding or education so that they don't even recognize when they have encountered it and not realized it. And to have so many layers of connection in that way, it makes, it makes our gatherings so tender and, and, 
refueling somehow, restorative somehow, nourishing somehow to have those, whether it's a training or the big conference we just had, to have those connections and time together, almost a respite from not the work, but the fighting and the advocating for understanding in places that should be offering care already. Right. Right. There's, it, there's something to be said for being amongst like-minded colleagues and not feeling isolated. Yes. And that, that was my experience early on. And I'll, I'll say the, um, the unit chief on one of the units I worked on uh, during the 1990s um, was a psychiatrist who was very honest with me and uh, said she doesn't believe in it. And she had acknowledged that she was trained at Johns Hopkins with Paul McHugh. I think you probably recognize that name. Um, who was uh, one of the members of the false memory syndrome group. Um, but every time there would be a DID patient on the unit and there was a crisis, the psychiatrist happened to find a way into my office and asked me to come help out. And I would often walk into a, a patient's room and the patient being in some kind of crisis and a nurse standing there with a, a syringe filled with medication and trying to give the patient antipsychotic medication and all it all that the patient needed was somebody to just either sit right next to them and have a or, or stand next to them and and just talk to them find out what they're feeling find out what triggered this experience how could we be helpful it's not magic it's care mm -hmm. it's empathy connection Is there anything else that you would like to say to people with a dissociative disorder? Don't stop. Don't quit. Keep fighting. If the therapy that you're in is not working, try to work it out with the therapist. Try to give the therapist a chance. But if you're confronted with rigidity and a refusal to learn or be flexible, find somebody else. Contact ISSTD. See if there are people that are members of ISSTD in your area. Work with someone who knows what you're going through. Try not to be alone. and hold on to hope. I think that's what I would say. That's amazing, thank you. What about for clinicians who are just learning about dissociative disorders? If you're a young clinician or new clinician or someone who's a, an emerging professional, I'm very envious of you that you're learning so early on in your career. Um, there is so much to learn. Make sure you go at a pace that's tolerable for you. Don't fill your practice with DID patients right away. Um, and I don't mean anything. I don't mean to be insulting or hurtful. What I mean is this is hard work. This is really hard work. And nothing touches my heart like working with a DID patient. And it takes a toll on your, your mind and body as a therapist. So I would suggest ease into it slowly, get supervision, make friends with other therapists who are working with TID patients, create your own group supervision that um, 
where you're supervising each other so it's it's not uh, an additional expense take classes <laughs> take classes in the um, professional training program that ISSTD offers um, ask for help don't be ashamed of anything you might be feeling or thinking in your work it all has meaning and it all has meaning for both you and the patient. Um, and stick at it. I guess that's what I want to say. I am so grateful for you and for a friendship with you and for bagels from New York <laughs> and for, for all the sensitive, tender conversations that I feel safe with you just to share that, that I have appreciated that about you. And I think it's one reason that I keep tagging you and keep talking to you and bothering you and, and appreciating you and connecting with you. I saw the face on the bothering. Sorry that I know that is old stuff. You're not bothering me. Oh. It's it's a pleasure to know you and to talk with you. I am always enriched and I always laugh and I always feel better. And I hope in some ways you get to receive that as well. Is there anything else that you would want to share or talk about today? Well, I have to say, you have the world's greatest laugh. <laughs> and, and, and that motivates me to, to want to keep you laughing <laughs> that's funny <laughs> um, anything else i would want to say i probably will think of some things after this is over um i'm happy to answer a, a couple more questions if you want well i can't really can't really think of something um something else I'd like to say. I I just, I want to make sure that I thank you for sharing so vulnerably about your um, family and your history there and for speaking truth about how to address that when it comes up in session, because that's true for all of us, whatever our issues are. And I guess the the other clinical question I would ask is just simply when you do have someone who is learning about their dissociative disorder, how do you explain dissociation? How do you engage in that conversation with them? What does that look like for you? Well, I've studied I studied with Philip Bromberg for about fifteen years um, in group supervision with three other psychologists, um, and so the cell state language has become an intrinsic part of me and my work. And what I, what I introduce to DID patients or non-DID patients is really simply, we're all made of parts. We used to think, uh, or cognitive neuroscience used to think that people were singular and bounded uh, human beings. But we've learned that we're a system of multiplicity. And in the absence of trauma and in the presence of secure attachment, healthy attachment, our different selves, our different ways of being, learn how to communicate. There's no need to create dissociative barriers between the different ways we are experience ourselves so we're not even aware of our multiplicity um so and then I'll, I'll say you know how many times have you been in a situation where you're talking to a friend and you say you know i feel i feel like going out for chinese food tonight but you know there's another part of me that would really like to go to the italian restaurant those are parts those are potential parts and people get it right away. With the DID patients I work with, one of the things I try to explain as early on in the work as possible 
is that your mind found a way to protect itself. And that people may be critical of you or giving you a diagnosis, but what most people fail to see is that your mind's dissociative capacity is actually a form of resilience. And if you hadn't had the ability to compartmentalize your experience, to develop the parts, you wouldn't be where you are today. You may not be today. And you need to recognize this as, as a gift, a gift that you need to learn how to use in a way that's most helpful and useful to you. And I would say, and I'm speaking to all the different ways of being you, especially those angry parts inside. I was with you until you said that bit about the angry parts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but you know how important it is. It's so crucial to, to be able to engage and withstand the intensity of a patient's anger. And one of the things I've heard, I don't know if it was Richard Cluft, um, years ago saying you're safer in a room with a DID patient than you are walking in the streets of New York city or any large city for that matter. In my, in my experience, and it's not like I've treated 10,000 DID patients. That's not how we work in our profession. Most of the angry parts that I've met were frightened and hurt little kids. And once once we can work through the anger, then we can make some real progress. I should say that I do set boundaries and there are limits to the expression of how people express express their angry, hateful feelings. They're free to think and say whatever they whatever they want, but you can't act on those feelings. I also say I have to feel like I'm safe with you as well, which surprises a lot a lot of people. It's interesting to me that we've come full circle talking about anger because it's something I've been working on in therapy myself. And I recently had a conversation about anger with Laura Brown, of all people. And um, I, I know that anger is a feeling just like any other emotion. I know that anger informs me just like other emotions do. And in particular informs me of injustice and informs me that something is not right. And that it is important to pay attention to that. Very important. It is still daunting to me to know how to express it in ways that are not just healthy, but also effective. Mm -hmm. And so far, that still comes out for me a lot through art and poetry. Because maybe those are containers, right? Like words on the page can be contained on the page and um, a canvas can contain the edges. Like, so I have these visual boundaries. Maybe that's part of it, but. I think you're right. I think for, for especially DID patients, anger can be very frightening and the intensity of the anger must feel enormous. There's a lot. I think I know that right now in the community, especially online, there is a lot of turmoil and hurt and um, concern. And some of that has come out in anger, which I can respect. But also it has been very overwhelming to me because of the particular issues I was already working on personally. And so the overwhelm has been very quick. And so it is hard to know how to respond or what to say or not say. And I have struggled with that. And one of the things my therapist said, I sent her a poem last night and 
she replied with the reminder that some of it is just impossible, that I can't fix it all, that I don't need to fix it all by myself, that mm-hmm. I don't need to speak for others who are speaking clearly for themselves. And just speaking for myself is enough. And yes. and so finding ways to do that has been a different kind of container, maybe that I just need to carry my own container and not everybody else's. So that's interesting that we we came to that in, in, in our conversation. So um, I, I just want to comment. Um, I think what you may be alluding to is uh, a community of people that define themselves as lived experience. Yes. Okay. Um, whether they're therapists or not. Um, so you know that there's a, a lived experience group that is trying to get together and form a special interest group at ISSTD. And when I saw that it's open to everyone, I immediately um, signed up and asked, asked to become part of the group. Because I, I, I think we as therapists, whether you have DID or not, when we as therapists really, it's incumbent upon us to really be able to understand what the world looks like to someone who has suffered in that way. And to hear how they felt othered, stigmatized. And I have, I have more to learn. And during my analytic training, uh, many of my supervisors said, your patients will be your best supervisors. And that's been the case. So I want to keep learning. And I, I hope that the people with lived experience who I will come across with um, will understand. I hope I can help them understand that um, there are people who really care about them and want to understand and learn how to be better clinicians for them. So we have begun and ended this conversation with me crying. Thanks a lot, Shelly. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is hard. You know, I got asked to do the plenary next year. and Wow, I, that's great. Congratulations. Oh, I, I talked to some of the people with lived experience because I know there's, there's this controversy and this, this pain and they're still needing it tended to and I didn't want to add to pain and but they said they said no please while you have a voice keep speaking and and so I took that back to therapy again and said it looks like I'm gonna do the plenary it looks like even the community wants me to move forward and that I have that support even though there's all these other issues we're still learning and untangling there's so much hurt and we want to be sensitive and she said the same thing again so i guess i'm learning this i've Mm -hmm. just speak what you know share what Mm -hmm. you see you you do she said you do that on the podcast already of you're saying your process you're just showing what you're learning you're talking through the process that has been lived experience the whole time and people yeah. who listen have access to that and see the process unfolding. And so whatever you say at the plenary next year will be the right thing because it is what you see and what you're noticing and what you're sharing. And that's all they're asking you to do. And so once again, when I can just contain it to that frame, it doesn't feel as overwhelming or as terrifying, even though it still is overwhelming and terrifying. Well, I'm thrilled that you're going to be giving the plenary. I will be there. I'll try to sit in the front row. Oh. And I promise I won't make you laugh. (laughs) (laughs) There's no telling what will come out of me. I will try. I will try. Um, 
I am so grateful for you, your sensitivity, your kindness, your friendship. I'm so grateful that you have been with us here today and um, that just thank you. You have been consistently kind to me since I have known you and worked with you through different things in the office or, or in committees and meetings and things. And um, it means the world to me. I think that that is one thing that by default we know comes from lived experience, right? For any of us, even DID yep. or not, of recognizing what feels safe and what does not feel safe. And and you have been a safe place in my world. And I but, just want to thank you for that and appreciate you. Well, you're, you're very welcome. And I want to say that I felt really honored that you invited me to speak with you on the podcast. And I've enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Your support really helps us feel less alone while we sort through all of this and learn together. Maybe it will help you in some ways too. You can connect with us on Patreon by going to our website at www.systemspeak.org. If there's anything we've learned, it's that connection brings healing. We look forward to connecting with you.